Amen. Thank you, Paxton and Stephanie and our entire team. Uh, Davey, Chris, Carson, Wes, Stephen, thank you guys so much. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Hey, if you will, grab your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2 is where we're going to be today. Uh, really, really helpful uh, weekly if you, if you bring a copy of God's Word. Uh, we're going to look down into several passages uh, or, or just particular aspects uh, of this passage today. We're going to be in verses uh, 19, uh, sorry about that, 12 through 30 today, 12 through 30. Um, look, we talk a lot uh, weekly here at Double Oak about what we long to be, uh, what our vision is as a church, that we want to be gospel people. We want to be people uh, to whom the gospel means everything. We want to be people that radically and passionately and fervently love the Lord, and that really manifests itself in, in the way we respond to the gospel, that we would believe in the gospel truly, that we would trust in the good news of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, that we also, as a result of that belief, are drawn into life in the gospel, meaning that we live in the reality of what the gospel affords us, relationships, families, connection, not only to God and union with him through Christ and by the Spirit, but also we have connection, relationship to one another. Finally, we're called to live out the gospel, to demonstrate the very love of God to the world. All of these things are going to emerge out of the text today. We're going to see all of these things happen as a result of reading this passage. So as we start today in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, I want you to start remembering, if you have your copy of God's Word before you, you can look and see the very first word in 12 is therefore. And it points back to everything that has preceded it. Specifically, in this context, it's verses 6 through 11 in chapter 2. It's the proclamation of the gospel. It's the urge to believe in the gospel of what Jesus has done in his life, that he takes on the likeness of men, that he becomes, that he takes on the form of a servant, and that he empties himself in humility in order that we might be saved, that we might be redeemed, that we might be able to proclaim so clearly and so directly what we just sang, that we are free, that we have been rescued, that though our sins were so many, his mercy is so much more. God's mercy is so much more in Christ. What Paul's getting to in this is the reality that there's a way that somebody who believes in this gospel, there's a way their life is meant to look. There's character that they're meant to be transformed in and embody. And one of the most amazing things about this passage in this text is quite often you and I are prone to pick up the scriptures and read this as a textbook. Now there is tons of instructions and teachings about how to live. And this is incredibly important for the believer. But the beautiful aspect is that Christ has lived this out for us. We, I think we, you and I have probably heard in conversation with people, or we've heard this before, maybe it's in like a work relationship or, or, or something, some, some relationship that you're a part of. Have you ever been told, do as I say, not as I do? Right? It's a credibility crusher, right? Like immediately, you got no respect for this person that tells you this. Because they're willing to tell you what you should do, but they're not willing to do it. Here's the beauty that the scriptures are for us. These things that we're going to be instructed to do throughout this passage today, specifically verses 12 through 18, they're challenging things. They really are. They're challenging things. 
But this is the reality. This is not something that, that it's like God says, just, just you go do this. But this is the beauty of the gospel is that Christ has done this. Christ has emptied himself. Christ has taken on the form of the servant. Man, how can I live out the gospel in my life? How can I do that? I do it by faith in the one who's already done it. So there's nothing that is mandated to us in this text today that Christ has not modeled. And that ought to give us deep encouragement toward that gospel humility, that gospel humble life. Let's look at what the gospel humble life looks like today and how you and I have the opportunity truly, not just the responsibility, but the opportunity to live in that. So let's read this. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, we're going to read through verse 30. There, there's two distinct sections. Uh, we'll talk about them one at a time today. Philippians chapter 2, beginning verse 12, says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom... You shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I do not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all. And has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. So look, as you look into verse 12, there at the very beginning, there's this clear picture, there's this clear referential point to the gospel that has been preached. Therefore, Paul writes to this group, this church at Philippi, he says, in light of these things, in light of specifically your belief in, your trust in, your rest in, your firm standing in the gospel, what Jesus has done in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, because you believe in this good news, now he's going to teach and expound upon how these believers actually live in this. What does it really look like? I think most of us that are here are practical people. And if we're believers, if we've trusted in Jesus, so many of us are here today to do a number of things. We are here to fellowship. We're here to gather. We're here to worship the Lord. And, and quite honestly, I think we come to this place expecting to understand from the truth of the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit, what's next for me? How do I live? What is the next thing I do? And I think we mean that and we feel that quite frankly from a, hey, what's God's will for me in the next decision that I make? 
we think of it in that regard, but we also think about it in just the 30,000-foot view of, look, I just want to please the Lord, ultimately. So how do I drill down into, how do I get to the place where I understand how to do that? Paul is going to walk us through this very specifically. He says, but first it's gospel belief, but there's implications of that. And this is the implication. First, it's that he calls them beloved. He has relationship with them in Christ. He's connected to them, and he's talking to them specifically as a group of believers. They're called to live in the gospel together. Notice what he says. He says, as you have always obeyed. So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, he's saying, look, even though I'm gone, even though I'm in chains, obey the word of the Lord. Obey the truths that the scripture teaches. Obey the very Holy Spirit of God that instructs you, convicts you, and teaches you how to live. And he uses this phrase. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. All right, how many of you have ever read this text personally, individually, and you've been absolutely terrified? All right. I think a number of us, and the rest of us are liars. Here's what, how this works. That, that phrase that we see, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, I think causes us a lot of trepidation. One, because in some ways we read that passage and we think that, that word, or those words rather, work out, mean that I have to figure out I have to discover or I have to inspect my salvation. And that it's a fearful, it's a trembling thing. A couple of things are really, really important to note for us to understand this scripture well. It's a very misunderstood scripture. And my hope and my heart is that the Lord would draw us to a place where we could see the truth of what this actually means in its context. And this is why we read these things in big blocks of Scripture, so that we can see what's happening around it, because that's going to help us recognize why Paul would write the things that he writes, why he would say the things that he would say. Is this Paul saying to them, figure out your own salvation, figure out if you're in the faith? The short answer is no, not at all. He, look at what he says. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. He's writing this. He's saying this phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling to a group of people that are believers that he acknowledges are living in the reality of the gospel. They are believers. These are people who have trusted in Christ. And it is, it's not just a trust in a profession they made in a moment, but they are obeying in a, in a very present tense way. They are obeying even currently. So Paul's saying, in the midst of your obedience, this is what you're called to do. So as you've always obeyed, obey in this way. Work out your salvation. Now, that would lead some people to say, okay, well, if he's not saying that, then he's not really talking about salvation. He must be talking about something else. Actually, he is talking about salvation. But it's salvation as sanctification. That's what Paul is teaching to. That's what the Spirit is longing to help us understand as believers in this moment. Because quite often, you and I look to a moment in the past, and we see that as salvation. And it's not wrong. The, the moment we trust in Christ, we repent and believe in the gospel, truly, we're saved. That's justification. What Paul's talking about is sanctification. He's talking about the fact that believers... These believers at Philippi, that you and I, 
And we don't use this language a lot. We don't talk this way a lot. We kind of know it's true, but we don't say it a lot to each other. This is an opportunity to lean into this. Right now, you and I are being saved. We are being saved. What does that look like? Maybe I'm not familiar with that. I don't understand. Let's look to 1 Corinthians 15, specifically verses 1 and 2, and we're going to see this language that Paul employs in probably one of the most, most robust and succinct presentations of the gospel that the scripture offers. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, so from right off the bat, this is not something that believers have worked for, this is something they've been given, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, so this is very consistent with the message that he preaches here, that the salvation that we have is what Christ has done for us. And he says this, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. And this is the word of the Lord, to which we say, thanks be to God. Here's what's happening in this moment. He's saying you are being saved. And it's really, really important to understand what the you is here. Because when he says you, each of these times when he refers to these believers as beloved, this is y'all language. We read almost everything internally, and it's natural in so many ways to read this text individually that I must work out my salvation with fear and trembling. But, but he's saying that these believers must do this corporately. They've got to do this together. So if it doesn't mean, this is about me individually, and it doesn't mean that I have to figure out my salvation, what does it mean? In order to understand working out, we've got to understand how this can possibly happen. Look at the very next phrase, the very next clause that we quite often miss. It says this, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, when we read sentences like this, there are, are several different nouns. But suffice to say, in the Greek, there are objects, but the subject of this entire sentence construction is God. He is the point. He is the one who works in us. So this salvation that is being worked out, you need to hear this and take, and take solace in this and comfort and hope and joy that it is God who is working in you. That it is God who is saving you even now. And it's God who will save us with finality and glorification when we come face to face with him. When we don't see in a mirror dimly anymore. When we truly see the Lord face to face. The challenge for you and I is likely this. We believe there is this moment in the past where we trusted in Christ, we repented and believed in the gospel. We trust and we profess that, and we would say with our mouths that Christ saved us. And quite often our action is that we believe now it's our job to stay saved. It's my job to stay saved. That like Jesus did this for me and now it's my job to stay in it. And to not lose it. Right? To ultimately live in such a way. And can, we, can we be honest with one another? To live in such a way where I, where I don't make God mad at me. Where I don't make God mad at me. Where I don't change God's mind about me. And run him off. Because of the mistakes and the sins that I make and the failures that I have. 
What Paul is saying is very clear in this moment. He's saying, not only have you been saved, but the life that you live right now, the present reality of the gospel is not that God saved you and now it's your job to maintain that salvation, that he's even saving you now. You're pumped, right? She's pumped about it. That God is saving us even now in this moment. This is what this means. Working out our salvation is not us earning it or gaining it. It means that our sanctification, a transformation, takes place inside us by the power of God's Spirit as we're just obedient, as we just avail ourselves, as we yield ourselves to the work of the Spirit. This is what Paul is saying. The thrust of this passage is not about how individuals get saved. It's really about the Philippians' shared gift of salvation and how that's being expressed to the world. So effectually, really what Paul is saying for this group of believers is this. You live out your salvation. You experience God saving you and transforming you, and you do that together in community. This is not something you go do individually by yourself. This is something that you work out as believers together. Paul's given a deep urge and a deep challenge to living in community together. And there's also a posture that takes place. So God is the power behind it. The present reality right now is the place that it's happening. But look at the posture that takes place here. It's with fear and trembling. Now, this phrase is going to be found in Exodus 15, Isaiah 19, 1 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 7, and Ephesians 6. It's important for me to say that to help you understand that throughout the canon of Scripture, this phrase is used, and every time this, this, these words are used, fear and trembling, every time they're put together in any sentence that's constructed, here's what they mean. They really refer to the very presence of God. They refer to the presence of God. So what Paul has in mind when he writes this is that, look, you obey, you live out your salvation You see God transform you. You experience what he's doing in you as you obey him because he's with you. What Paul has in mind is is that these believers are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So his urge to them is saying, God is with you. So there's two ways we could view this fear and trembling. We could view it as, hey, God is with me, and that's a scary thing. So I need to be on my P's and Q's. I need to, like, be on my best behavior. But that's not what Paul is describing here with his understanding of what it means to have fear and trembling. It's actually of awe and of wonder at the fact that God is with me, and it's that love. Even in what we read this morning in our call to worship, as Brian led us through Psalm 103, that picture of fear that's given there is in response to the merciful love of God. So this fear and trembling is awe, it's worship, it's this attention, it's this affection which we give to the Lord that allows us to demonstrate his beauty to the world. When we rightly worship, when we believe in the gospel, and we do it together as he's created us to do, the world will see him. So doing this, living out this gospel, living out the salvation that we've received, Allowing God to transform us in the present moment because we're going to submit to him, we're going to obey him, we're going to follow him. 
we do it because we recognize that God is with us. There's this gentleman named G.K. Chesterton, famous writer. He wrote this incredible Christian work called Orthodoxy, some of you may be familiar with. Uh, but he started as a newspaper writer. He was an art critic, a literary critic, uh, and he would write in London's newspapers. This is late 1800s, early 1900s. He became a Christian in his adult life. And it was kind of a big deal at the time. People asked him uh, all kinds of different things about what made you change your mind. How did you come to faith? You, you've kind of staunchly been against this or, or at least apathetic to it. How did you get to this spot where you trust in Jesus? And one guy, specifically a reporter, asked him, said, hey, look, I, I've, I've got one question for you about your conversion. And it's this. What would you do if Christ was with you right now? And immediately, doesn't miss a beat. This is what he says. He is he is. He recognizes the spirit lives in him, that God is in him. This is what Paul wants us to recognize as believers, that we're going to live out our salvation, that it's going to become this transformative thing that happens in us, that we have been saved, but we are being saved now. God is the one that's doing it, and we get the opportunity to take part in the beauty and the richness of it as we obey him because he is within us. It's the spirit, his presence that empowers us. Look now in verse 14, and you'll see this. The very practical things uh, from here forward, Paul is going to offer so many deep practical things that supports this. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So that's the charge. This is what we're called to do. We do things without grumbling or disputing. Uh, and this is where we bring up one of our favorite phrases. It's not easy, but it's not, or, or sorry, it's not easy, but it's not complicated. I read those words fast, just like you do. Look down at your text and read those words. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's easy enough. The information's in there. I understand it. I'm not supposed to grumble. I'm not supposed to dispute. That sounds easy enough. But I think if we looked into our own lives, that's a really complicated thing. Happened to me this week. Uh, I got caught by a fellow church member grumbling. He's in here, right? In this room. Not my proudest moment, okay? Uh, here was the deal. I, I picked up uh, kids. It was late in the afternoon. I picked up kids. I got kids in the car. But I'm this person um, that on my way home, I, I, like all, I chronically have to stop for gas. There are those of you that like get to three quarters of a tank and you go back and you fill up. You know? And there are people like me who are like Kramer. And I'm like, how far below the E can I get this thing? Right? Um, and so I got to pull in uh, and get gas on this afternoon. And there is, there is this reality uh, that my kids don't want to be in that car and everybody loves mama more than me. So I, I just want to get home. I just want to get onto 280. And now here's the thing. I understand traffic. And I get that those people in that lane that are next to the Cowboys where I'm trying to pull out of, they are not obligated to let me out. This is abundantly clear. <laughs> but I would hope that they would. I would hope that they would take into account the scriptures of Philippians 2, that they would not look only to their car's interest, but the interest of my car as well, all right, that I could get out. Um, I'm sitting there, and I'm like behind several cars, and, no, and it's taken them forever to pull out. And then they finally pull out. It's my turn, and it's just car, 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 car. And I don't know. The, the light's broken. It's an infinitely green. I, don't, I can't figure it out. I, like, I can't get out. And I do one of these, right, like in the car seat, the like full body shake, throw up my hands. And then I have uh, my wonderful friend in the gospel who calls me and is like, hey, man, I just saw you, uh, like, toss your hands up in the air. Like, are you okay? Like, is there something wrong with you? Is something happening? Are the kids okay? Uh, look, 
I'm grumbling. I'm upset about the fact that I can't pull on 280. And let's be clear, it's ridiculous. Somebody should let me out, right? I think we can all agree with this. But the main point is, Paul knows that believers, that all of us are tempted to be in this place where we grumble and complain about these circumstantial things. These little bitty things. I've got a pretty good feeling that I'm going to look back on my life and that that moment when I couldn't turn on to 280 was probably not this moment of deep magnitude, right? But I let it affect me, and I'm stressed out about it, and I'm frustrated. And I would argue this to be true. It's because I had some bad perspective. In that moment, I was failing to believe the gospel, Now, you might say, Michael, how do you get there? That's a pretty big stretch to say, like, you can't be frustrated with traffic anymore and that you're not believing the gospel in that moment. But truly, if my perspective is such that this little thing is frustrating me, I'm failing to remember, I'm forgetting the freedom that I have, the life that I have, the life that that Christ has given me so much so that I could be so humble in the gospel that I don't care. I'll get out when I get out. It doesn't matter. This is a tiny thing. This is a little bitty thing. So you're like, all right, this pastor's not great. I've got to find somewhere else, right? This guy's not doing it right. But look, we're, we all struggle with this stuff. But here's the reality. Paul, in the most practical way, says, don't grumble. Don't live that way. You've got freedom so much so that you don't even have to worry about you anymore because of what Christ has done for you. Because he's emptied himself. Because he's taken the form of a servant. You can do that too. And you can be patient and kind and humble and not grumble. That this is how you can live. So there's an individual component. But he also says, don't dispute. Now, I don't know anybody who disputes themselves. So the reality is, this is about community. This is about believers. He's actually really kind of leaning toward what he's going to talk about with these two folks in the church that have an issue in chapter 4 later on. But he's saying this in an overarching way. He's saying, look, you don't dispute with one another. That's not what the Christian life looks like. This deals with community. And everything that comes next to me is nuts. Because this simple little phrase, don't grumble and don't dispute, look at the ramifications that this has. This is what Paul says. This is what your Bible says. See this. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, and that this is the result, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. I was going to say we'd be a little bit nicer. And the text says that you may be blameless and innocent Children of God without blemish. That that is actually the result of not grumbling and of not disputing with one another. That in so many ways, it's that easy. We know it's not. So what is Paul saying? What is he driving at? He's thrusting to these people. He's saying, this is it. You've got to understand the life of the Christian community, the life of the people that seriously Love one another from different races, different backgrounds, different places, different socioeconomic statuses. All the things that would, the world would say, these people don't go together. The gospel in them and their love for one another shows them blameless. Reveals that they are truly blameless, that they're the people of God. And it shows 
the world who Christ is. Because look what happens. That this would be the case that they'd be blameless and innocent without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That this would be the result that in, if we don't live that way, if our perspective is right, if we believe the gospel, if we seek to love one another, to look not only to our own interests, as the previous verses say, right? But look to the interests of others. If we pour ourselves out, if we're humble, if we live in the model that Christ has given us, this happens. We shine as lights in the world. What empowers that? How do we get there? How do we do that? It says this, holding fast to the word of life. So our trust in, our belief in, our rest in the word of life, what is it? It's the gospel. It's the story of the good news of what gives us life. It's the person and work of Jesus. God's providential plan, his perfect atonement, and now the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us. If we hold on to that, then we shine as lights in a world and that is a crooked and twisted generation. We don't have to look very far to recognize that's the reality of the world in which we live. But I would also offer and say that particularly that phrase, a crooked and twisted generation, is something that, that maybe sometimes we have a hard time connecting with. I think the most beautiful thing that one of, rather, the most beautiful things this passage illuminates is that we've been talking about Philippians and this little area of Philippi, this little Rome for weeks, and how there are some of these distinct parallels with Rome and our world now. This ought to give you encouragement to say, hey, the Bible is applicable to me. This matters. Because I think so often we read these ancient words and we say, but what does this like mean for me and to me? Like, how, like, how is this in my world? Like, Michael, this doesn't connect with where I am. There's this guy, his name's Tim Keller. We like him a lot here at Double Oak. A brilliant pastor and theologian. He sends out this tweet this week that seals the deal and really dovetails so much with what we're walking through. So he tweets this May 26th uh, at 5.23 a.m. So your dude's up early. He's thinking about God early, all right? And this is what he says. He says, this is how it was in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire would say, you Christians are too exclusive. You threaten the social order because you won't honor all deities. Now remember, the people to whom Paul writes here in Philippi, the world in which they live, this Roman Empire, is such that they don't care if you worship Jesus as long as you worship other stuff too. They don't care if you worship Jesus, but when you proclaim that he is Lord of all, when you go on to say things like every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess on earth and under the earth, like when you're saying these kind of things and you're saying that Jesus is Lord, that only he is the way, the truth, and the life, you're being exclusive. That's what the Roman Empire saw in Christians. And this is why they're going to face persecution and troubles and suffering. It's why Paul talks about those things. They were perceived, believers were perceived to threaten the social order because, we wouldn't, because they wouldn't rather honor all the deities. But look at the parallel to what you and I live in today in the modern West. This is what Keller says. He says that, that the world we live in says this to us. You Christians are too exclusive. You threaten the social order because you won't honor all identities. Now, this is serious stuff. This is the world that you and I live in. That we will honor and say that just everything's okay. Just do, you do you, whatever you want to do. Everybody has, has their own truth. You have your truth and I have my truth. And, that, and, that's, and we're just going to kind of leave everybody alone and let everybody do their thing. Do you see the parallel? 
that, that this ancient text, the scriptures that we preach from every single week is not foreign to you. It's actually near to you. That the situation these believers are walking through is close to us. And it ought to help us understand that there's a corollary. If Paul writes these practical things to these believers at this time, and that this time is not unlike the time I live in, what's the result? I ought to live in this way too. I ought to live out these truths as well so that we can shine as lights in the world. Do you know what's going to help the world experience love? Not telling everybody they can do whatever the heck they want to do. What's going to help the world experience love is them to see believers love each other, care about one another, and come after us and say, I want that. I want whatever you got. Because I've been grasping and trying, and I've been, I've been wondering about who I am in every way, shape, or form, from, from sexuality to gender to the things that I have to the groups that I'm a part of to, to, to every echo chamber that I've, that I've been in, all of these different things that I've experienced. I've been trying to find something, and none of it looks like this love. And I want to be a part of that. So this is the hope for you and I, is that when we live in boldness in the gospel, truly we're going to shine as lights in the world. What's the result of that? that? That Paul would write and say, these believers, I didn't run in vain or I didn't labor in vain. That this comes to fruition. That there's this beautiful picture, this culmination of people living in the gospel as a result of his ministry. So much so that he can say this, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith... I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Here's what he's talking about there. He's basically saying, even if I die, he's in, he's in Roman imprisonment. It, it, he's going to await trial, and he recognizes that he, he, could, he could die. He could be executed. This is why back in chapter 1, he would make this bold proclamation that for me to live is Christ, but to die, and this is wild to hear human beings say this, but to die is gain. To die is gain. It is more to have Christ face to face, to be fully alive with him. So Paul recognizes that he could die. And yet this is the word that he describes or, how, or, or the, kind of the main sentiment. Everything that he's experiencing emotionally is wrapped up in this truth. He says, I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. This is what he's saying. The circumstances that you and I find ourselves in, they're not worth our grumbling. The little things that you and I find to dispute, they're not worth disputing. Do you know why? Because the gospel is more beautiful, more joyful, more rich than anything this world has. What Christ has done for you and I gives us, offers us. We, got the, we have the opportunity, you guys, to walk into, to take hold of supreme joy. All of the riches of Christ. He emptied himself out. He took the form of the servant. This after he took on our flesh, our likeness. And we have the opportunity to rest in this precious gift. Paul says, there's joy here. Live in this. Don't grumble, don't complain with one another. Don't dispute one another. This is what the Christian community looks like. This is what it looks like to live in the gospel together. And this is what Paul is not saying very clearly. He's not saying, hey, look, there's a group of you guys, and you guys will go to Philippi Community Church, and you'll go to the 9 o'clock, all right? 
and then, and then you'll come in and you'll, you'll hear some Jesus and then you'll leave. And then there'll be this other group of you that'll come to Philippi Community Church at 1045. And you come and you find your seat and then, and then you come and get some Jesus and then you leave. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is these people that are here that worship with you, you're meant to be connected to them. You're meant to have real relationships with them. I would implore you I would urge you, I quite frankly, I would beg you to find a way to get connected to community here. Because in all of this practical application or implications of what the gospel has done, this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, you got to go live this out together. Experience sanctification with other believers. Be encouraged. Offer rebuke when it's necessary. Be together because this is what our faith looks like. It's not a bunch of people walking around the world with this individual relationship with God where we're disconnected from others. Instead, it's this group of people that believes the gospel together. They live in it together. And Paul does this in, in the next set of verses, 19 through 30, are all about this. He shows very practically what this looks like. Because here's the thing. When you read 19 through 30, it's not like the most profound or powerful section of scripture seemingly it's about two guys just two guys one's timothy one's epaphroditus in response or, or kind of in context with all these other incredible things that paul says about the gospel this is just him kind of updating these believers on where timothy is and his longing to come where Epaphroditus is and his longing to come. But a couple of really beautiful things emerge. This is what happens. Paul describes, I think it's in 22, describes Timothy as a son. How as a son with a father, he served me with the gospel. This incredible, passionate language. This is what he's saying. He's saying the gospel takes people that aren't family and makes them family. It makes them connected together. So much so that it's like a blood relationship with a father and a son. Look at what he says about Epaphroditus. He says, I'm the more eager to send him. Therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And I may be less anxious. So this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, for Epaphroditus, I want to send him to you so that you can rejoice. I love you so much that I want you to see him again so that you can rejoice and then I won't be worried about you because he's with you. This is not just friend language. This is family language. This is deep love and care that these believers have for one another. So back in chapter 1, when Paul would write early on, and he would say, I thank my God every time I remember you, this is evidence of that. Do you know what this is? What the story of Timothy here is? What the story of Epaphroditus here is? And how it connects to what... Paul has said about living out the gospel in the world, shining as light, being community together, all because we believe in the gospel. This is a picture, a reality, that, that this text, the gospel itself, takes place in people. Real human beings. Real people like you and me. That the gospel is not a part of our life. That the salvation that we've received is not a thing among other things. Instead, it's everything. It even characterizes now the way we relate to every single other person. If you've trusted in Christ, 
we're connected. Truly. Deeply. Really, really. That was almost a Savage Garden song. Um, like we're really, really, really connected with one another. Right? We got to believe that. And we got to celebrate that. This morning, we had the opportunity to celebrate it in a unique way. Uh, we're going to get to worship uh, and experience the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to ask our worship team to come, uh, elders and deacons, folks that are going to serve uh, the table to go ahead and come. And look, um, when Paul writes these things, when he describes these things, his situation in so many ways is grave. And yet, in the midst of that, he's calling for joy. He's calling for people to live in the excitement and the beauty of what God has done. Um, we want this moment at Double Oak to be one that is like that as well. Now, if you're anything like me, and some of you may be, you grew up in a culture, in a world where you came to this table with a couple of things. A, a number of us, I think, many times have come to this table with fear and with trembling. Worried that we weren't worthy of receiving this bread and this cup. You need to understand this morning, believer, if you have trusted in Christ, this table, this meal is for you. Come and take this and receive the gift that God has given you. Come and experience it. And I would ask you to do this to the best of your ability. Um, if, if you're okay with this, if you're comfortable with this, I'd, I'd encourage you to come to the table not alone. Come to the table with someone. Um, I think most of us, we try to eat meals with people. And we do it in such a way where we celebrate one another's company. And we enjoy meals in a really, really profound and powerful way. I, like half of you will be at Habaneros after this. I know this. And you'll laugh and you'll talk and you'll cut up. Um, may come to this table with that same heart and celebration and attitude. Rejoice in what God has done for you. Come to this table and experience the goodness that God has given you. And when you come to this table today and you experience the body, this bread, and this cup, I want you to think about this. The fullness that you have here is a result of Christ emptying himself. This is the good gift that God has given you. So this morning, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Here's what I would also say uh, and encourage you with this morning and just offer some instruction. If you're, if you're new here in Double Oak or you haven't been a part of who we are, I would just encourage you the way the scriptures teach. If you're not a believer, if you have not trusted in Christ, um, please refrain from taking this meal. It will be empty ritual. It will not mean a thing to you. What will mean something to you is to trust in Christ. And so that would be my urge, my challenge. And you might say, hey, I'm beginning to believe. I'm thinking about that. Then I would say, come find Terrell O'Brien or myself or Kevin or Shane or Richard or Joe or Paxson or any of us. Come find us and say, man, I want to know more about Christ. And let that be your response and come forward today rather than at the table. Um, but believers, I would urge you to take uh, an opportunity this morning to stand even now and come to this table and receive the free gifts of Christ's body broken for you, his blood shed for you, uh, and celebrate this meal with our community, the family of God together. So as you're ready, you come.